Thank you, Amy. O come, O come, Emmanuel. He did come, didn't he? It's easy to accept the baby in the manger, isn't it? Very hard to accept the one who said, repent, or you will otherwise all likewise perish. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. May we be witnesses of both the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus and the one who said those words as well. Amen. It's great to be this in this season, isn't it? It's a blessing to be together worshiping. And when we worship the risen Christ and know all that he came to do, he did do. If you'd like to have your little ones in an age uh, graded service up through grade four, you can dismiss at this time. Nursery all the way up through grade four, we have places for you. But if you want to keep them with you, you are welcome to do that as well. We are a family church and we love having them up here. They don't bother us in the least. And we know that they're going to drop a hymn book and, and they're going to make a loud noise and all that kind of stuff. And that's perfectly fine. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest here, we welcome you. If uh, you would, sometime during the service, take a guest card from the chair in front of you. Let us know that you're here. Let us know something about you. Uh, it'd be great to be able to pray for you and to be able to encourage you and get to know you. I'm Kurt Parker. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. As I'd like you to turn there, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you are new with us uh, this morning, we are approaching the end of our look at Paul's instructions concerning our freedom in Christ. When we say that, freedom of Christ, we're simply referring to uh, that, uh, those issues that come up from day to day and, and week to week that are issues and decisions that you have to make uh, concerning things the Bible neither forbids nor commands, but are things that you are able to do. It will also include, of course, your freedom in Christ, uh, includes your freedom to be free from condemnation. So whatever it is that you do in your life, you will never be condemned, which places some tremendous responsibility on individual believers for their decision-making, and this is why Paul is addressing that as we look at 1 Corinthians, particularly starting at chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, the end of that chapter. Paul is dealing with some misuse of freedom and helping them understand some very important theological terms and some teaching and giving them some commands concerning the use and misuse of their freedom in Christ to make many of the decisions that come about in life. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, as we looked at that, allowed us to see uh, the third of Paul's illustrations, which helps us understand the considerations needed in the exercise of our freedom, and it helps us to avoid the pitfalls of the misuse of our freedom. Now, in discussing the dangers of the misuse of freedom in Christ, he used Israel as an example of what not to do. We've covered all of that. We won't go back and see that again. You can read that if you've missed it, or you can catch online uh, those teachings. So he connected Israel of old then to the New Testament church because he's going to use them as an illustration of what not to do in freedom. And then he showed how Israel's mistakes and the misuse of their rights as God's people foreshadowed what could happen with the Corinthian church and every believer in every New Testament church since. So that was his point, going back so far in history, not just a disconnected series of events, but very connected to today. And after really chronicling all the patterns of that behavior that Israel demonstrated in the wilderness, which is behavior that's found in equal measure, as we've seen in the modern church. Paul got very specific with the church in verse 12. Look there with me, and here's where he goes from um, they and them and us in verses 1 through 11 to him. So it really uh, directs the teaching to an individual. It's very personal. He says, verse 12, it says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he not, does not fall. It really addresses a, a pride issue going on with this freedom in Christ 
uh, thinking perhaps that it's, everything's going to be fine. The only consideration is what I want to do, and I'm going to be fine in these things that I'm allowing. And Paul says, listen, if you think you stand, take heed that you don't fall. And therefore, in this passage, really takes in everything we know about God's nature and how he deals with misuse freedom. Because Paul's just got through, going through all of that with us. So Paul places the burden on the will of the individual Christian. Paul says you have to be aware of what's happening around you, uh, the questions that must be asked when a gray area issue comes up or an issue for a decision to involve yourself in one thing or another are, will your actions block the road to the gospel? Or will they cause another believer to be derailed in their walk, or both? Will your actions put you in a place of jeopardy or disqualification through your overconfidence? In other words, you're going to get to a place where your, your witness and your testimony are, are damaged to the point where you're not even effective anymore because of what you've allowed in your life. God loves those who are, or who are his own. He, his acts of discipline in the past then are examples of what displeases him now. And so these questions are just as relevant for the past as they are for the present. So God continues to judge the misuse of freedom in similar ways, which is why Paul's going through all of this and disqualification from the work and the job God has set before you can be the result of misuse freedom. And we saw then along with uh, that overconfident freedom can come the worship of idols. Paul takes that in. Overconfident freedom can lead to immorality. Overconfident freedom can lead to putting God to the test. In other words, doing things he said not to do. And in your place where you're never condemned, you've tested God and said, do you really mean to be holy? Did you really mean for me to do what you said and not to do these things? Overconfident freedom can lead to complaining. It can lead to whispered discontent. Uh, you're allowed to complain, of course, in your own mind, but God says, listen, these are not things that I allow, and I, these are not things I want you to do. These put you in the same classification as Israel, and all those things are sin, and our freedom can lead them, us into them. And so that really sums up what we looked at. So in light of the mess that the undisciplined use of freedom can bring, Paul gives the church a tremendous passage that we ended with last time that calls to mind God's faithfulness even in the midst of our own foolish overconfidence. We find that in verse 13. Look there in your copy of God's Word, if you would. Read it with me. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. A couple of key words there that we looked at right at the end last time is that word temptation, parasmos, that's the Greek noun parasmos. We saw the word appears in context to be an enticement to sin. So certainly arising from a believer's overconfidence. In other words, as you wanted to put it right into your own life, placing yourself in a place where you can be enticed to sin. In your freedom, your freedom from uh, condemnation, you place yourself in a place where then you can be enticed to sin. And so uh, that uh, very important principle and concept, as we understand freedom in Christ, we also understand this major role it plays both in faithful walking with the Lord as a bondservant and as a place where you can really be tripped up and cause some serious harm both to yourself and to those who watch. So it can come from the believer's overconfidence, just putting yourself at a place where you shouldn't be. It may come from inward desires, from outward circumstances, more likely a combination of both circumstances, the flesh springing from this opportunity that the foolish use of freedom has, corrected, has created is kind of crying out for fulfillment. And so we've looked at all of that and, and, and connected that back to our study in Romans, so I think you understand that. And the next important word here, overtaken, it's from the Greek verb lambano. It's in the perfect active indicative. So lethen is the way you pronounce it there. And in other words, something you've done in the past that has as a completed result, that completed result now being laid hold of or taken captive by sin. So a completed result is a situation of your own doing. 
You've placed yourself somehow in a position where you have been taken captive. That's the issue. So actually addressing those who are overtaken or taken captive in sin. So the circumstance is a misuse of freedom. The problem is you've been taken captive by sinful behavior. In your freedom, you placed yourself someplace where you shouldn't have been, and in that place, you found yourself overtaken. Maybe you've been drawn by your flesh and your lust. Maybe you've been re-exposing yourself to something you've been delivered from in the past, and your body desires those things again. Uh, but the bottom line is that you, in your overconfident freedom, were not as careful, here it is, as Paul gave an example of his own life, to run as one who wishes to get the prize. You weren't careful to do that. You haven't been careful perhaps up to that point. To run as one who wants to get the prize, as you should have been. And maybe you were not, and here's another Paul, one of Paul's keys, disciplining your body and making it your slave. You just let your body do whatever it wants to do. And so you're placing your body in a position where you're going to have it crying out to be fulfilled. As Paul warned back in 1 Corinthians 9, those are important issues in self-control. Run as one who wishes to get the prize. There is a, a course laid out for you as a believer. It's not whatever you want to do. The scripture gives you that course, run as one who wishes to get the prize. A box is one not just beating the air, you're not just swinging wildly. You're running the marked off course, uh, bringing your body into discipline. That's where the beachhead, the only remaining beachhead for sin remains. The real you is new, the real you is holy. The body, unredeemed, un, un, uh, uh, unglorified body still remains that beachhead where you can have some trouble. Bring it into discipline, Paul says. So remember, the word overtaken for the believer uh, doesn't mean you're ever a forced sinner. Okay, we looked at that last time. Don't think somehow you're forced to do this. You're not some victim of some wretchedness that hasn't been conquered. That's all been conquered in your life, according to Romans 6. This is of your own doing, a position you've placed yourself in, if you will, a trap you set for yourself and you stepped in it. Okay? And that's really the language, literal language of all of that passage right there. So, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation, so that's an enticement to sin as a result of misuse freedom in this context, has overtaken you. In other words, you're caught by what you've allowed in your life, but such is common to man. In other words, what you're going through, every person has to deal with. Everybody has to deal with the moral temptation of a fallen world. Everyone. Nothing unusual about that. It's just the reality of life. But God doesn't stop there. Believers can count on help because he goes on to say, God is faithful. Look at verse 13. God is faithful. That's the remedy to the circumstances and the situation. Even in your own, causing it yourself, see? God's not changeable. He's not cantankerous. He's not arbitrary or fickle or random like the false gods of the world, okay? The God of the universe, who's given his son to save you, is unchanging in his faithfulness. And he's going to bring you to glory, even if he must take you early in discipline. That's the point of looking at what happened to the children of Israel, as many of them did not make it into the promised land, did they? And fell along the way. And with them, many of them, God was not well pleased. That's why Paul says what he says. That's why we looked at 1 John 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, which say, in essence, the same thing. That sometimes in discipline, God will take believers home early. Because he's going to bring you to glory. Because you're his. And you're never condemned. But you get to the point where you might not be useful anymore. And he's just going to say, okay, well... If that's what they're going to continue to do, then I'm going to just go ahead and discipline them, perhaps take them home, bring sickness on them. There's all kinds of things that we've looked at. But as Paul passes on to us the message from the Holy Spirit, it appears that God is very active to help you succeed. He'd rather you see, you see it through. He'd rather you do well. So look at the next part. We'll get to that principle. So he says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful, here it is, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. In context, then, 
Paul is addressing the moral crisis at Corinth. That's the context. So anyone reading his letter then, having misused their freedom and ended up captured, perhaps uh, were feeling that the strength of the temptation was too great and they have to succumb to it, perhaps being enticed by what they'd been delivered from, all the things we just talked about, could grab onto that marvelous truth. See, the temptation brought on by the misuse of your freedom, Paul says from the Lord, won't be overpowering. But with, look there in verse 13, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. And we saw this principle. Here it is. When the temptation comes along, the faithful God who sent his son Jesus will make a way out. A way of escape, the Greek noun ekbasis. It's really make a different destination, a different final outcome. It's actually literally a place to walk, a place to stand. And by context, obviously not in the continued being involvement in this enticement to sin and being captured. A different place for you to be. An impossible situation, if you will, that turns out differently than before because of a previously unknown escape route. God provides a way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. The Greek verb huperfero, aorist, active, indicative. In other words, in his strength, you have been and will be empowered to continually bear up under whatever pressure temptations may bring to bear. Not just bear it, but bear up under it. And you can look at it this way. God who is powerful as well as faithful, continually watches over your life to deliver you from the trap that you've even set for yourself. See, Because he's in both ends, isn't he? He's in the redeeming end, he's in the calling end, and he's in the finishing end too. See, So he's going to provide that way of escape. And it's important to understand. The Lord who delivered you from the guilt and the penalty of your sin is also in the business of delivering you from the power of that sin's grip on your flesh. You get it? Because even though sin's a defeated foe, we haven't said that it isn't powerful, okay? That it doesn't have some influence. And I'm not telling you any secrets, am I? And this is and will be a real and constant battle, see? And, and, and help will come, perhaps sustained by accountability with a brother or sister in Christ, perhaps through the manipulation of your, of your own circumstances that the Lord will do in his sovereignty, uh, perhaps through your thought process that the Lord will hijack and bring into your mind some scripture because you're dwelling in the word, see? And, and, and those of you who know this passage and have known the way of escape, understand how that works, okay? So all those and perhaps some others. And here's the thing, beloved, but even if you're not looking for a way of escape, he can't deny his own promises, okay? And in that light, we look then to the warning and instruction that come by way of his people right into the modern church. He's going to do it. He's going to bring it through and make it happen. And he'll bring his own to completion, providing maybe a way of escape to usefulness or bringing discipline to bear as needed. Now, look there, if you will, to verse 14. We're going to read all the way through verse 33. And now that you have this groundwork, this moves very, very quickly. I think you can understand then how all this in this context works together, okay? Look at verse 14, chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, you, you look at that. I'm just going to comment briefly because we're going to get into it in just a minute. Wait a minute. I'm free to do whatever you want. From a condemnation perspective, yes. To do whatever you want from God's own will. Did you really think Paul was just going to say, hey, just you know, work it out. Whatever works for you. No. Paul gives some commands, doesn't he? So is he limiting your freedom? Yes, he is. And he's going to give some very important reasons why. And they're going to understand this very clearly. So think about the context now. 
Corinthians, what they're doing, how they're making their evaluation of whether or not they should do the things they're doing, just kind of looking at the consideration of their own selves. Hey, if I feel like I can do this, that I'm free to do it. There's no condemnation in it. I'm doing it. And Paul says this, therefore, so everything he said now, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Verse 20. No. But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Verse 25, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. 28, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Verse 29, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Let's stop right there. Now look back at verse 14 for our time's sake, okay? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, in light of everything I've taught you, remembering your original topic with me, what you think you should do, the decision you made concerning meat offered to idols, your attendance at worship rituals, your freedom to do all that, that's what therefore is referring to. The things that they've decided to do. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. And that my beloved, of course, is a marvelous word, agapetoi, Paul just confirms his emotional attachment to the church. It's a term of endearment he uses. It's a catalyst, really, for his investment uh, in them, for the hardship he endures. He loves them, so he endures the hardship. For the hard things he has to say, he loves them, so he says it. Many of them criticized Paul. They disliked him, but he loved them, and love springing out of his relationship to Christ then allowed him to do the things he was going to do and needed to do. It says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the answer to their question. Flee, the Greek word, phlegete, present active imperative. When you see present active imperative, I need you to understand something, beloved. This is not Paul's suggestion to them, okay? You know, if you want to, do it. And if you don't, if it doesn't make sense to you, don't. Paul's instruction 
addressing their insistence on participating and eating what they want inside their freedom in Christ. This is the principle concerning the actual situation they're asking about. Okay, this is what we're doing. And don't we have the freedom to do it? And there's no God and, uh, but one and all of that stuff, okay? And Paul just says, listen, flee from idolatry. And it has the, definite, it has the article in front of it, just refers to any and every practice. Flee idolatry. Paul says, flee from everywhere that it's going on. Any of these religious services, get yourself far from them. You're free in Christ. You're not condemned. You can never be condemned. But as a principle, flee that situation. And that's not an unusual command from Paul. Uh, Paul will give the reasons for making that decision to limit freedom in a moment. But this is not new language for Paul. He urged them, if you remember, in chapter 6, verse 18, to flee what? Flee immorality or flee fornication. And we looked at that. In 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 10, Paul tells Timothy to flee controversial questions, disputes about words, and the love of money. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he tells Timothy to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with, which who, with those who call on the Lord from pure heart. So flee idolatry, flee fornication, flee controversial questions and disputes about words, flee youthful lusts. And now he says here, Flee idolatry. And the present imperative means they must do this as a habitual practice. This is to be the way they conduct themselves. To have nothing to do with what goes on in idol worship. Look at verse 15. I speak to wise men, you judge what I say. Now, the Corinthians regarded themselves as pretty wise. They felt like they had great knowledge and knew what they needed to do. They certainly weren't humble about their opinion of their own uh, knowledge and their own understanding. But catch this. This isn't an invitation to weigh in with their personal opinion on the subject, okay? Which tends to be the way the, the church works nowadays, okay? Well, I'm going to ring in on what I think about what Paul is telling me to do. Paul isn't saying that, okay? He says, I speak to wise men. Judge what I say. In other words, Paul uses this phrase to direct them to four reasons that they will easily see shows what he's saying makes sense. Okay, I'm about to tell you why I've told you to limit your freedom here. Here they are. First reason, they're going to see it makes sense when they understand the nature of the Lord's table. You find that in your notes. The nature of the Lord's table. The command, flee from idolatry. The first reason, you'll, this is going to make sense to you, he says, you're wise people, so you're going to understand this, he says, when you understand the nature of the Lord's table. And I think it's important that Paul starts here because it's one of the things that connects this modern church to Israel. But it also is one of the things that probably lead, led them to the illusion of some confidence. Uh, they have the Lord's table. They share, in the, in, uh, as it were, as an illustration, in the suffering of the Lord and the shedding of his blood. Uh, just like Israel in the wilderness was provided uh, manna and, and water to eat, uh, to, to eat and drink. All those kinds of things. So they, they probably looked at that as some kind of insulation uh, from any problems. But Paul says, listen, you're going to understand to flee idolatry when you understand the nature of the Lord's table. Look at verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Stop right there. And there are some really nice insights about the practice of the early church at the Supper of the Lord here. And we won't pull out all of them, but according to chapter 11, verse 18, and, and chapter 11, verses 30 through 34, and really you can get the perfect... Uh, set up if we read all that we won't for time but really the whole church came together 
So everything we read here, we read with the understanding that the whole church together is doing this. Okay, so they're coming together and they're taking the Lord's Supper. So the whole church is sharing together in the broken loaf and in the cup. And so the whole church is participating together at a spiritual level, even at an emotional level. The whole church, in our thankfulness and our commitment and our love for the Lord Jesus, whose broken body and shed blood paid the price for our redemption. We share that, Paul says, together. And as a footnote, unfortunately, I think, with the use of individual pieces of bread and small personal cups, we tend to focus on the personal participation in the Lord's table and have forgotten that it's supposed to be done together, okay? Which is why I remind you regularly about the importance of horizontal relationships as you come to the table. In other words, you can't come together and take the Lord's table in the spirit of the early church without dealing with your attitude and your actions towards other members of the body, not and do it appropriately. So as they eat the Lord's table, following the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the cup, they are participating, here it is, in the blood of Christ and in the body of Christ by a corporate act of remembering his saving death for them. Now, verse 17, it says this, and so this gives the essence of his reason in the nature of the Lord's table. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the many members, then, catch this, of the congregation are made one body as they share together in the Lord's table. So it's not just about this vertical relationship with the Lord and communion. It is about that, but not just about that. It's about a oneness that is going on as the church comes together. The whole church, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, comes together. There's this one body thing going on. And so Paul's illustration is that is essentially what's going on at the table of the idol. Okay, that's the connection. Paul says, because there's a oneness that goes on as you share in the Lord's table, you share in the cup and you share in the bread, and there's a oneness, a fellowship, if you will, going on. That's what's going on with those who are really worshiping the false god, see. And here's the thing. By appearance, then, you appear to be part of the corporate family of those who worship idols. And Paul says, flee that appearance. In your freedom, limit your freedom. You don't want to look like you're one body with those who are worshiping a false god. And that's what you appear to be when you do what you're doing because that's actually what goes on when you take the table of the Lord. You're one body and you appear to be one body with those who worship idols. Second reason. You're going to understand this makes sense, he says, when you understand the nature of temple sacrifices. So you understand the nature of the Lord's table, you're going to understand you don't want that appearance as you take the table at the idol, okay? And you don't want that, uh, that appearance. Now, if you understand the nature of the temple sacrifice, that's another reason why you're going to see why what I say makes sense. So Paul is calling to mind the practice of sacrifices in the temple of Jerusalem now, okay? That's his focus, just like his first focus in the first point was the Lord's table. He wants to talk about, okay, what's actually going on in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem? Now, verse 18. So look at the nation Israel, Paul says. Look at your copy of God's word. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And we looked at this before. And just a few, maybe a month ago, burnt offerings, peace offerings, wave offerings. Speaking of Israel, okay, all these offerings had certain specific instructions connected to them. And all of those instructions including, included what? Eating some of it. All of them. Okay, now there were certain uh, guidelines laid out. You had to do it like the Lord set it up. So 
he says, listen, I'm going to call to your mind the nation of Israel. And those who eat the sacrifices, aren't they sharers in the altar? And we understand that all those instructions included, included some type of partaking of the sacrifice. Why? Because eating it, then you physically participated in the representation, whether it was fellowship or thanksgiving or a sin offering or purification or whatever it was, you acknowledged your connection with the reality of the sacrifice for you by eating some of it. Got it? And I think you understand that. I mean, that's, that's the reason why you had to take it in and not just give and say, okay, take care of that for me, priest, and see you and go live like you wanted to live. This is the activity of the faithful. I understand that I want to give thanks to the Lord, and I'm, I'm presenting this as a wave offering to the Lord. And so some goes to the priest, and some goes to you, and you partake of it. I thank you, Lord, for this, this, this offering I'm giving you. I thank you. Or, Lord, I have come in contriteness and sin. I know that I've violated your law, and this is my sacrifice that you prescribed, and I'm going to participate in it. Why? Because I did it. And so I'm telling you that, that I did it. It's my responsibility. So you acknowledge that, you acknowledge that connection with the reality of the sacrifice by eating some of it. And by using the word altar, of course, Paul really is likely meaning the Lord God of Israel who himself sanctifies the, the offering and the altar. Okay, so you're coming to, so Paul just says, look at the nation of Israel, or not those who eat the sacrifice of shares in the altar. And the altar, of course, is sanctified by the Lord and their shares and what goes on there. And so you, you understand this connection. And so the altar of the Lord was what makes it meaningful. So here's Paul's point, okay? And I think you've already probably arrived there, okay? The Corinthians thought they could attend the sacrifices to false gods with impunity, knowing that there was no God but one, like we saw in chapter 8, verse 4. So what's the big deal? There isn't any God there. But Paul's point is this. In eating part of the sacrifice in the temple, if, if rather, if eating part of the sacrifice in the temple was a living, dynamic connection with the reason for the sacrifice, and it created a drawing near to the Lord in this activity of the faithful. So I'm connected to this Lord, this wave offering, this thank offering, whatever it is, this sin offering, this, this offering of purification, whatever it is, I'm connected to it. And I'm drawing near to you, Lord, because this is what you've prescribed. And I'm going to eat it and tell you that I understand all of this. If that's what that accomplished, then here it is. The same thing would appear to be happening when eating the sacrifice to the worship of the God in the pagan temple. You are connected. You're associating yourself with whatever the sacrifice was about. It would be acknowledging a connection with a reason for the sacrifice and the false god who hallows the sacrifice. So that's the appearance, see? So Paul says, no, flee idolatry and everything that goes on with it. And here's the reason. You're going to look like you're one with everybody who's worshiping the false god and you're going to look like you're taking in this offering and you're connected with whatever the offering was all about. And this appears to be what's going on to all who look on. And if Paul wants to be, here's the thing, all things to all people that by all means he may win some, then this activity is obviously not one he can do. And he's telling them, you can't do it either. You can't participate in something that when this person is redeemed, they will have to forsake. Remember, we talked about that before. That's one of the limits of becoming all things to all people. Don't put yourself in a position where you're doing something with an unbeliever that they'll have to repent of when they come to faith. So Paul says, listen, you can't do this. This is one of the reasons why this command, he says, makes sense. Now, those first two reasons really run the risk of people saying, you mean there's actually a God there to be connected to? So Paul just reiterates in verse 19. He just wants to make sure he short circuits that idea. Look at verse 19, if you would. What do I mean then? 
that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And what's the answer? No. I've already told you that. There isn't anybody home here, okay? And, and the way he posed the question just shows how ridiculous the question is because he's already dealt with it and they already understood this, okay? Paul says, of course, idol food is nothing and an idol is nothing. It doesn't take away anything that he just got through saying. He just wants to make sure they understand this. You still become one with those participating and you still share a connection with a false god who hallows the altar and with the reason for the sacrifice. And then that paves the way for reason number three. And they'll see that Paul's instruction to them makes sense when they understand the nature of pagan worship. The nature of pagan worship. There's your third reason, Paul says. You're going to understand what I mean by this and why I've given you this imperative when you understand the nature of pagan worship. And then he gives us a glimpse, and this is really great, of the spiritual plane that's around us. Okay, now look at verse 20. But I say, so the answer to verse 19 came in verse 20, so I'm not going to say no again, okay? Verse 20, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Paul says, what do I mean? That there's a thing, uh, that the thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, it's not anything. But, Paul says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to become sharers in demons. It is true, there's no God but one. Uh, there's no Apollo, there's no Zeus, there's no Diana, there's no Shemash, there's no Molech, there's no Allah, there's no Ra, there's no Osiris, there's no Seth Horse, anybody else, there's nobody, okay? Nobody, home. No God by that name or any other name, only Jehovah God. And here's where we get our glimpse into what's been going on then since false worship began. Paul says, there are no, are no gods, there are no goddesses, they don't exist, in this you're correct. But that doesn't mean that there isn't anything there, okay? The Holy Spirit lets us know that there are demons there. The Holy Spirit reminds the church through Paul that demons exist and they are present in the temples of the gods. So mark this. As the priests offer sacrifices and the people eat the sacrifices, they worship demons. They're in touch with demons. They open their lives up to demons. So Paul says, it's going to make sense to you when you understand the nature of pagan worship. And maybe they got, you know, this, this little church in Corinth is this island in the sea of immorality, and all these people are out of idol worship, but maybe they never connect. Once they understood in their, in their uh, incomplete theology, once they understood that there was no other god or goddess, and they weren't really worshiping anything, they perhaps didn't understand that that doesn't mean nothing was there. Demons were there. And maybe this is an, uh, the light bulb goes on for them for the first time. Wow, that's how that prayer came true. Oh, maybe that's how I actually saw the God move one time. See, or whatever else they're thinking. Because it doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It just means there's no God there. There's no goddess there to be worshipped. And the Holy Spirit reminds the church through Paul that demons exist. They are present in the temples of the gods. So this has obviously been the case. And it's always obviously been the case. All throughout the history of false worship, shortly after the flood, until the present day. Now, I want to just, as a footnote, remind you this, because we looked at this a long time ago, but just in your mind, understand the reason for the flood. The reason for the flood was not idolatry, and I need you to understand this, okay? Because idolatry has not always been around. The reason for the flood was immorality and unrighteousness. The reason for the flood was not idol worship. It's pretty tough to worship an idol when the Lord is this, I mean, the earth isn't that old, Right? I mean, and what about right after the flood? You think they went right straight to worshiping idols? 
when you can look around and see all the results of the flood everywhere? No. See, God's been obvious. I mean, you could go talk to Seth if you wanted to, okay, if you're Jacob. You want to go talk to, you know, great uncle Seth? Sure, just let's make the journey. So these guys are still around. So idol worship hasn't always been around. Genesis 6-5, the reason for the flood. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so it goes on to say that he determined he was going to destroy all flesh and deliver Noah and his wife and his sons. We saw that, you know, men didn't start with idolatry and then work their way up to know the true God, okay? And I just want to clarify that because there's a lot of books out there that would say the opposite. The bottom line is this, people didn't start in idolatry and kind of work their way up and find the best possible solution and get to the top and say, okay, it must be God, okay? God has always revealed himself. He's made himself clear, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, by what's been made and some of his attributes so that men are without excuse. And that's always been the case, beloved. And, of course, as we went into the flood, they were destroyed because of immorality, they were destroyed because of unrighteousness, but not because of idolatry. And that's really borne out through history. I've given you these before, but I just love these, so I, I keep them as a note to myself. According to Marcus Terentius Varro, he's a Roman historian, lived 116 B.C. to 27 B.C. The Romans had no animal or human image of God for 170 years after the founding of Rome. How about that? Herodotus says that the Persians had no temples or idols before Artaxerxes I. Lucian bears similar testimony for Greece as to idols for Egypt as well. Eusebius sums up the whole theory of antiquity when he says the oldest people had no idols at all. So they haven't always existed. Now, there were demons active on the earth back before the flood and currently, possessing the bodies of men in order to have relationships with women. We see that in Genesis chapter 6 but they weren't being worshipped. But as soon as men created gods in their own image, which are no gods at all, we find out here that demons were involved in that. Psalm tells us that. There's a number of places uh, in the Old Testament that tell us that as well. We saw they're allowed by the Lord to impersonate the false god and do just enough to keep men who wish to be deceived, deceived. So since that time, demons have been active in false worship. And just as a footnote, I believe they're active in the modern church today. And I think they're active in, in modern Western society. We just don't call them the same things. We have psychology, and we call them other things, and we, um, we, we label it certain things, and we try to control it with medication. We do all kinds of stuff, but the bottom line is we still have the same type of activity. And any missionary course that goes to a third world country where uh, that type of, of uh, understanding, if you will, is not available, uh, you see the activeness of deacon, uh, demons in society. So we saw that they're allowed by the Lord to impersonate false gods, to do just enough to, for, to, to keep men who wish to be deceived deceived. And so since that time, demons have been in false worship. Now, in 2 Timothy 2.26, uh, we actually see they're involved in the church. They seem to indicate, that seems to indicate, that believers can be snared and held temporarily captive by a demon or by Satan himself. And that's a symptom that uh, being the case when somebody's in constant opposition, uh, 1 Timothy uh, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 says, uh, pray, uh, those who are in leadership, pray that they may be delivered uh, from being taken captive by Satan to do his will. So there's actually some activity going on even amongst believers. So I need to clarify your mind. If you're constantly in opposition, this might be the case for you, okay? So the issue is this. Uh, we see here demons are active in false worship. They're active in the modern church. They were active in the past, after the flood. Paul says something that should be done, uh, just obvious in light of this knowledge. He says this, I don't want you to become 
sharers and demons. Now that you know this, now that the light's gone on here in Corinth, oh, well, there was no God there, but that doesn't mean nothing was there. There were demons there. I don't want you to become sharers and demons. And of course, Paul is dealing with a number of Corinthian believers who would arrogantly scoff at false gods. They, the priests who served them as sacrifice in pagan temples, they would just scoff at all that. That's nothing. It's to nothing. There's nobody there. Whatever. And even disrespect and put down believers who are new out of that and whose conscience betrays their inability to accept all of their positions. So Paul says to them, you know, your theological knowledge is dangerously incomplete. And your dismissive attitude is going to put you in jeopardy as you foolishly exercise your freedom in Christ. So verse 21, Paul just paints it out in black and white. Here's what he says. Look at your copy. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul says there's a serious conflict here. You can't have this both ways. There's no room for compromise here. The Lord's table reminds us that the Lord is the host of the table and the one who desires our fellowship and whose fellowship we desire. By reason of the illustration and explanation, the table of demons indicates that there may be other hosts there, ones you wouldn't want to have hosting the table if you find yourself in and, and, and uh, fellowshipping there with those who worship false gods. If we're really in fellowship with the Lord, we won't want also to be in fellowship with demons. He says, you understand a little better now. This is not something you should do in your misdirected freedom. So, reason number four. And they will see Paul's instruction to them make sense when they understand the nature of God. When they understand the nature of God. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? And the answer is, are implied, both are an emphatic no, that we could be provoking the Lord to jealousy if we find ourselves doing those types of things. Paul says, if that's what you're involved in, you are provoking the Lord to jealousy. Should you be? No. Are you stronger than he is? No. In other words, do they think the risen Lord has no opinion on such an eventuality as this? Of course he has an opinion, and Paul has given it to them. See, how foolish they are. The nature of God is this. God is jealous for the worship of his people, and he doesn't share it. He doesn't share it. He doesn't share that worship with a fellowship with demons. He doesn't share that, share that worship with an apparent connection to the, sac the reason for the sacrifice. He's not sharing it with those who are participating at the table uh, together and look like they're one with false worshipers. God's a jealous God. And now that they know the truth of the spiritual dynamic involved in all they're doing, and they remember the Lord's anger towards his people in the wilderness, they shouldn't even think of using their freedom in such a way. Is it limiting their freedom? Sure. Paul says, definitely flee idols, flee idolatry, and every practice that goes on with that, and there's the reasons. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we, saw, we see the Lord throwing that into his top ten. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Because when you do that, you show that you do. That's what he says. It's reiterated in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. You shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, catch this, whose name is Jealous. It's one of his names. He's a jealous God. That's just obvious, I guess, if your name is Jealous. And here's a slippery slope. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their idols. 
and someone might invite you to eat of a sacrifice. You see, we're going right in the same direction the Corinthians found themselves in, see. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and some of his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. Just really straightforward, isn't it? God's a jealous God. Don't do it. So Paul's revisiting this whole thing. Just because you're born again, just because you've been delivered, just because you are set in a place where you're not ever condemned doesn't mean that it's okay for you to use your freedom to do any of these things. Paul says, flee idolatry. It's not one of the options that you have, he says. Deuteronomy 4, 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's jealous for the worship of his people. He's jealous for his holy name. He's jealous for righteous deeds, the scripture says, for his will to be done, for the freedom of his son purchased on the cross to be used in our lives as his bond slave. He's jealous for all of those things. See. As you think about freedom in Christ, you think about the connection to uh, you not being condemned, the connection to becoming all things to all people that by all means I might win some. You have to recognize there is going to be some places where for your own spiritual health you're going to have to say no. And for the health of the church and for the health of the watching world around you, and the gospel that you wish to present, things that you allow in your life, put you in a place where you can place yourself in jeopardy of violating God's law, of placing yourself in a position where you're testing the Lord, a position where you become very critical and very uh, accusatory and very complaining. All those kinds of things become places where the Lord says, in your freedom, you're not allowed to do this. I don't want you to do this. It places you in a bad position, in a position where you're not going to grow and it causes other people not to grow. And next time, Paul's going to give us some closing remarks. We're going to close concerning our freedom in Christ, but perhaps the best way to say, I, I think, as we think about this freedom in Christ, is really, this has really opened up a whole new understanding of the part freedom plays in a faithful walk, isn't it? I mean, as you understand your freedom in Christ, you understand that you're not condemned, you understand that there isn't anything you can do which will bring condemnation on yourself from an eternal perspective. Your sins are forgiven. All of them, past, present, and any future ones that you will commit. That doesn't mean that in that freedom from condemnation that you're free to do whatever you want and test the Lord and just do whatever you want continually because the Lord says, listen, I've given you what I want you to do. And Paul says, limit your freedom here particularly to the Corinthian church. And so it's a whole new understanding of how freedom plays a very important role in a faithful walk as in your freedom in Christ you make yourself a bond slave of Christ and a servant to all, Paul says, I, I make myself a servant to all that by all means I might win some. For the sake of the gospel, giving up whatever freedom it is that it's going to be required for the gospel to be effective. But it also plays a very important rock, uh, role in bringing you into a temporary bondage. You understand where all these types of, of enticements to sin are coming from, you placing yourself in a position that you can't control. And in your confident, overconfident freedom, you've placed yourself in a place where the body is crying out to be fulfilled because you've exposed it to the things you've been delivered from. So there's very, very practical applications here. And the freedom of Christ is a very important concept to understand. As you understand, the Lord doesn't tempt anyone, but you get yourself in that position. And he is faithful to provide a way of escape, even in the middle of your messing it up. See. Paul's next words are very familiar to us. We won't, we won't go into them, but just again, we've seen this now numerous times. Verse 23 says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. In other words, all things are forgivable, beloved. In the law of Christ, you stand in grace. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And obviously, as we think about some of these things that Paul's talked about here, some of the things in our own life, we understand very clearly the application there. Not everything you do is going to be profitable to you. Some things are going to subtract from you. 
And all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Not everything that you're going to do is going to bring about the encouragement and the uplifting of the church and your own life, the people around you, the world that's watching. Just obvious connections to everything Paul's been talking about and what we have to deal with on a regular basis. And we'll dig into those things uh, next time. So let's close in a word of prayer, if you would. Bow your head with me as we really seek the Lord to apply his word to us. And that really is this time period. Don't always offer an invitation for salvation, but we, of course the invitation to salvation is always open. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. So if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, we would love to introduce you to him, to show you what it means to be totally forgiven, to stand uncondemned for the rest of your life with the Lord actively participating in your sanctification and bringing you to glory. A marvelous place to be, a marvelous benefit to have, but only available if you're ready to confess and repent and believe. But today, of course, we're talking specifically to believers, a very, I think, uh, mature dis- uh, discussion, a very important discussion, uh, one that has much application, much more than we could ever make, uh, because we're all involved in different situations, we all have different pressures on us, we're involved in different circles, and this active interaction of gray area things and decisions uh, in freedom in Christ to do certain things have so much implication. No one goes into some certain freedom saying, I'm going to ruin my life and ruin my family and lose my job and all that because I do it, and yet people end up there often. And believers can be caught up in many of the same sins their unredeemed friends are caught up in because they place themselves in a place where uh, those sins then become an attraction, a pull into immorality, a pull into sinfulness. And so, Lord, I pray that you will deliver us from these things. And even in our own uh, haughtiness, perhaps we don't, we're overlooking areas of our life which in our freedom we've allowed ourselves to become involved with, which we think are of no consequence, and yet we've just been deceived. And they've camouflaged themselves in such a way that we don't even understand the questions we should be asking anymore. And so, Lord, bring it fresh to our minds, seal it in our own heart. Uh, use your word to purify your people, to help us to be like Paul, making themselves slaves to all, slaves to the unredeemed, slaves to those who are walking in their walk but yet may not be in a position of maturity yet. Help us to ask the right questions. Are we pulling up the road that leads to the gospel by what we allow? Are we derailing someone else's walk with the Lord because we've allowed some certain thing Have we placed ourselves in a place where we're in jeopardy of disobeying the Lord and putting him to the test? Did he really mean what he said he meant? So, Father, I pray that you'll bring these things to our mind, uh, renew them on a daily basis as we read your word. We might understand where you'd have us be and how effective you'd like us to be. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.